Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Professor Jocelyn Alcott. She's Associate Professor of History and Gender Studies, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at Duke University. She's the author of Revolutionary Women in Post-Revolutionary Mexico and the co-editor of Sex and Revolution, Gender, Politics, and Power in Modern Mexico. Her most recent book is International Women's Year, the Greatest Consciousness-Raising Event in History. We had a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Jocelyn Alka. Jocelyn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I want to ask you something. When you were growing up, what did you want to be? What did you want to do? Well, like all young girls, I wanted to be president. <laughs> sure, and then everybody. I wanted to be a brain surgeon. And how I ended up a historian is a long story. But, I, but yeah, I had all kinds of ideas like that. I was pretty certain I was going to be president. <laughs> well, it's still in the cards, right? I mean... Uh, <laughs> you, you it's know. not looking like a great job these days, is it? Yeah. It's, well, I mean, it's exhausting. If you ask yeah. the current occupant of the office, it's right. just... I have no idea. Who knew this would be hard? Uh, so I asked that because as I was reading your book, which is called International Women's Year, the greatest consciousness raising event in history, I, I thought this would be a great film. And I thought maybe she wanted to be a screenwriter or something because I don't read many Oxford. God's <laughs> well, I don't read many Oxford University Press books that uh, I read a lot of Oxford University Press books, but I don't read many that are that feel like, OK, this could be a screenplay. Like, I mean, it's a really engaging book. And then I thought, oh, <laughs> idiot. It says act one, act two, act three. There's 16 <laughs> scenes. And I was like, oh, all right. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I get I catch on eventually. <laughs> You know, it actually was not written to be a screenplay, but it was written. I, you know, I say this in the in the um, acknowledgments that I initially had written this very staid academic book that was very. It was like it had six or seven analytical chapters that were thematically based, and um, there's just so many great characters and so many great stories here that you kind of can't resist making it into more of a drama. So I didn't actually imagine it as a screenplay, but I it would it would be fun to have it become one. <laughs> So who would you cast as like, so you, you, who would you cast as like someone like Betty for Dan, for Dan? Oh, well, clearly Bette Midler, right? <laughs> so could it be a musical too? Absolutely. Don't you think? <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. And who, um, and with, uh, Domitilia? Domitilla, yeah. Domitilla. Who would play Domitilia? Oh God, that's a great question. There's so few indigenous actors. You'd have to find some, you know, she's, she is, um, Indigenous herself, so you'd have to find someone who could uh, play that part. That's a great question. I, well, I'll have to talk to a casting director to find out. Okay, I know people. I know people. <laughs> you know, so, you know, so, gal. It's really interesting that you you cast this this book about International Women's Year, and then this conference in Mexico City, right? That that's actually the, the, the it's part of the big culmination and focus of International Women's Year. Mm-hmm. And you say that like there are two things that defined it in the wider consciousness. And you said both are lies and both are true at the same time, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Like most of reality. One is a photograph and one is a story. Could you tell us a, a little bit about how the photograph yeah. uh, of, of these women jockeying for a microphone and this alleged kind of pseudo confrontation uh-huh. between Ferdinand and Domitia shape the sort of way this conference is sort of remembered in popular memory. Yeah. So the photograph is less something of the memory subsequently, but it, it really defined the story at the time, which was that the Associated Press photographer had taken a photograph at the what's called the NGO or non-governmental organization Tribune. So this conference actually has two, has a bunch of parts, to, like moving parts to it, but two major parts. One is... Um, what's a governmental conference of what are called instructed delegations. That is to say, governments, or in UN speak, member states, send delegations, you know, so the United States sends a delegation, Japan sends a delegation, and those delegations are are pretty tightly constrained by what their diplomatic, the parameters of what kinds of agreements they can arrive at, and, and so the State Department sends instructions and so forth. About five kilometers to the south, three miles to the south of that, there was, um, it was actually one of the first times a UN conference had done this. There was what's called a non-governmental organization, Tribune. 
that was where all the action was, right? And it's it's this moment which we take for granted now, but in the 1970s, where all this civil society, so like extra governmental activism, was really roiling. And so this AP photographer takes this photo at the NGO Tribune of these two women kind of jockeying or wrestling for the microphone. And it goes out. It, it is the most seen image from the from the conference. It's actually labeled as being from the conference, which makes it seem like it's a bunch of a couple of diplomats rather than a couple of activists who are arguing with the microphone. And it gets cropped in really close. So all you see is just these two. It's a kind of great metaphor for the whole media coverage, which is they've just homed in completely on these two women fighting over the over the microphone. And I was amazed. The, the woman, the woman yeah, on the right actually looks like she's flexing her bicep. <laughs> it's a strange picture. Like, I mean, there's no question that like at this moment, these are activists who were intensely committed and interested. And I, it's, it's important to remember at the moment that this conference happened, it was the first of its kind. It had been kind of seat of its pants. No one knew if ever, anything was ever going to happen like this again. So in retrospect, we think, what was the big deal? Like fight it out over the next few conferences. At the time, a lot of these women thought, this is our one shot to, to say our piece. And so there was some tension, um, but but the media focus on what they call the global catfight was really stunning. And one of the most heartbreaking parts about that is that the AP reporter um, was a really uh, avowed feminist and who had done a lot of, of coverage of women's issues, but also of the United Nations, this woman named Peggy Simpson, who um, I think still lives in Washington, D.C. And and she ran around trying to kind of correct the image of this with the articles. And it was just it was just kind of hopeless. It was the it was the image that everyone was hungry for. So that went out everywhere. When I finally saw the full image, the uncropped image, what you see is there's like people on the dais who are laughing and, who you know, it's it's clearly kind of an argument, but it's not quite this intense, violent smackdown that it appears in the in the um, cropped photo that went out. Uh, the story and this is the story that I had heard when I, whenever I'd heard about this conference and whenever you read anything about this conference, the way it gets shorthanded is as a smackdown between the U.S. feminist Betty Friedan, who is sort of the feminist that everybody loves to love and loves to hate, right? And, um, and a woman who became well-known afterwards, uh, a Bolivian activist named Domitila Barrios de Chungara, who was a militant in a labor union. She was the head of what was called the Housewives Committee of the Tin Miners Union, the, the um, what's called the Siglo Bainte or the 20th Century Tin Miners Union. And everybody just tells that story. And what I was fascinated by when I started the research was that confrontation, the confrontation that everyone talks about, it never actually happened. So then I was curious, why would we shorthand it to this, to this thing that didn't happen? And I, I do think that part of it is the story we want to tell ourselves is that we can put everything that is sort of U.S. and liberal and white on and kind of feminist on the one hand, and we're going to put non-white and non-Northern or third world or however, you, you know, third world was the term of the time, and Marxist on the other. And that's the, that's the fight, right? And so it, it completely oversimplifies. If you look at politics today, what you realize is these fights are never that yeah, simple, no, yeah, right? Yeah, and so, actually had a, a confrontation, a, con a conversation yeah. Um, with Ferdan, but then actually with a Mexican kind of cosmopolitan yeah. feminist had more of a confrontational yeah. engagement and yeah. everybody transposed the confrontational to the Ferdan yeah. thing. And then you actually know that when it gets told that, that, that uh -huh. both sides, when you talk to people in Mexico versus people, people yeah. in the United States, they kind of, there's all these different versions of and confusing yeah, well, I mean, the funny thing, so of course, most people in the U.S., you know, the name Domitila Barrios de Chungara is kind of a mouthful. In fact, at the Tribune, she was just called Domitila because that was, you know, but nobody can really in the in the U.S. can really remember her name unless they know much about Latin America, in which case they, they because she wrote a, a, a testimony, like a memoir that was pretty widely read. In Latin America, they regularly substitute Gloria Steinem for Betty Friedan. It's just like, you know. One y'all looks just like the other does. It's kind of funny. Um, Gloria Stein was at the conference um, before it started. There was a journalist gathering before the conference got going in earnest, and she came down for that, but she left before the conference actually started. Yeah, and, and, yeah, it's it's interesting um, that so much of this you point out becomes. It's like um, the philosopher Club uh, of Zizek says, like antagonisms. Huh. And so, like, the yeah. whole thing seems from start to finish yeah. to get framed in antagonisms, I guess, because, like, it's, well, first of all, I mean, 
the media media bias is really right, I guess, towards laziness and sensationalism, right? <laughs> and antagonism. <laughs> it makes for good pro- for good copy, yeah. right? Like, yeah, and so and so, I mean, but it, that sort of shapes the legacy of the way this this conference is interpreted. So, could you say a little bit about um, antagonisms or or <laughs> conflict? Because right? there is a real conflict here, right? Around yeah, sort of the the. What we would call now like neoliberalism and people that think a kind of enlightened, uh, albeit probably chastened capitalism really mm-hmm. was the best for women, feminists yeah. and, and for human society at large versus people that saw it as a subjugation tool and that. In the in the yeah. reimagined society, the global South is still going to be in the same position, and 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 so some real right. tensions about just being yeah. disconnected from the struggles that another group of women really felt like were more yeah. prominent, right? I mean, it's an interesting kind of world historical moment, if you will, in that the 1970s, the 1970s are crazy. It's like a completely different planet, I think, from the one we're on now. But the thing that's really notable about it is you're right at the kind of cresting of all of these waves of decolonization, right? And so at the UN in particular, it's a distillation of that because the General Assembly of the United Nations has blown up with all of these new nations. I mean, the actual membership of it has mushroomed, but it's been taken over by... um, you know, the non-aligned movement, essentially. So with, in in the, the block in the UN is called the Group of 77, which is basically, it's not a, a perfect mapping, but it's basically that those are non-aligned countries or third world countries. And, you know, so by the, the exact time they're, they're deciding about this conference and whether or not, whether or not to have it and all this stuff, they're in the middle also of suspending South Africa because of apartheid, right? So that's the moment, it's this moment that everything sort of geopolitically is in play. But it's also the tail end of the 1960s and a sense that not, not of, I mean, it's, it's the kind of, you see that roiling, but you also see that desire for a consensus. And I think particularly for people, for, for women in particular who had been in these, in this, in this, these, not so much struggles, but in like doing this kind of activism for a long time in these pretty established groups, they felt like, okay, the way to do this, we have protocols and we have systems in place and you've got to like show that women can play by the rules the same way that men can and be good parliamentarians. And on the other hand, you have this, I mean, this is classic kind of late 60s, early 70s, right? You have all these activists who say, forget it. Like this, these rules haven't served us well. And so there's all of this, um, kind of effort to challenge everything that that is like every policy that comes through to challenge every figure of authority. And so that's that's part of the dynamic as well. And what struck me though was that so the story that I would hear and there's there's there hasn't ever been any book written about this conference which I thought was odd because it's considered a major turning point in global feminism. But the stuff that is written, which is mostly by people who participated, occasionally by journalists, um, mostly shorter essays really emphasized the disappointment that there wasn't unity, that there that it didn't end in a kind of kumbaya moment of, okay, and here's what the women's movement is. And that that would come later. I, much of the later has ever come on that. And I, I, I think that the lesson from that isn't we need to push harder for kumbaya. It is that really the most generative moments were the the space were the moments when there was space left for conflict and to really let the conflict play out rather than to try to contain it. Yeah. And do you think, you know, it's funny. I, I, when I was in, in graduate school, I studied with a religious historian who was talking about um, uh-huh. the Christian church's vitality and signs of vitality. And one of the signs mm-hmm. that he noted was heresies. He said, when, when mm-hmm. there are heresies, it's because the movement's oh, growing. That's a great and People are, yeah. are translating it and reinterpreting. And so he's like, yeah. when there's no heresies, it's because there's an ossified sort of orthodoxy that kind of is just being unchallenged. Oh, I love but, that comparison. Well, that's what it sounds like you're describing, right? That, that, yes. That, that this is yes. These are feminist heresies. Moment, right. Like this is a generative <laughs> yeah. moment for, where, yeah. where things are. And so, but, but somehow that's cast as a problem rather than an uh-huh. opportunity, right? Right. And I mean, so that's why you have people trying to police the heritage. That's why you have an inquisition, right? Um, and it's, this isn't, this isn't quite as violent as all that. No one's getting burned at the stake or anything like that. But, but there is this sense that, of deep betrayal in precisely the way that you're talking about. I just love that comparison because it is very much the same dynamic. 
Yeah, yeah, and and actually, you know, as a, as one of the interesting things too that I couldn't. It's funny because as I was reading, I was I was noting all these sort of right wing criticisms of of the feminist movement and and it's promoting lesbianism and and kind of being yeah. anti male and going to destabilize economies uh-huh. because women are just going to be yeah. anarchistic and stuff. And I keep reading in the Excelsior, and I'm like. Must be a journal. I've got to look it up. And I'm like, oh, this is just one of the, the biggest daily paper in Mexico. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. And this is, I mean, it's really uh the media coverage, the media coverage in general was um kind of uh, astonishing to see. I, I think the thing that the Mexican coverage didn't surprise me quite so much. I'm I'm trained as a historian of Mexico. I kind of saw that coming. I was a little surprised to see how anti-feminist publications like the New York Times were. Because I, ju- I think I just assumed that uh, it was a—I mean, not that it doesn't have its anti-feminism moments now, but but that by the 1970s that it would have been more open to some of those ideas. And the the persistent dismissal of a lot of these issues, particularly um, issues that around women's uh, employment opportunities and sexual rights and things like that, were completely written off and and always put in comparison with, you know, remember the women who have to carry firewood five miles and walk 10 miles for water. And, you know, those those are really the problems as if we can't keep all of these things in our head at the same time. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, it seems like it's interesting, right? Because in light, in light of the last election, you see the Democratic mm-hmm. Party really asking some soul searching questions, right, about mm-hmm. some of these questions around identity politics. And it does seem like yeah. Almost there's an either or being presented, right? Like either the Democratic Party is going to take diversity seriously and mm-hmm. things like feminism and things, or those things have to take a back burner to the struggles of people who the economy is not working for, the American worker. It almost seems parallel uh, eerily yeah. to the to the way that you talk about the way International Women's Year and this and the climax of this conference is is framed. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the the persistent um, setting, like a zero sum game that's set up, gets set up between feminism and women on the one hand, and this image of the white male working class, you know, that somehow is always going to be antagonistic to that. And I, I don't think that's actually how it plays out. There's a there is a much more complicated, and I think we just saw this uh, affirmed again in in Georgia that the question of where cultural politics fit into all of this is in fact complicated. I think there's a lot of anxiety about what changing gender roles means. There's, I don't I don't mean to dismiss that at all, but I, I do think it's an oversimplification to say we have to choose in the same way that it was an oversimplification in 2008 to say we have to choose between, you know, civil rights and women's rights, right? That, that they got kind of set up against each other. Um, I think that this last round we saw women's issues seen as kind of being detracting from other other issues and that that just doesn't make a lot of sense (laughs) i I read i heard somewhere recently i heard actually a couple places that among millennials almost 35 percent don't think it's that important american millennials to live in a liberal democracy like "Eh, it's not that big of a deal oh my (laughs) they have not lived elsewhere yeah well it's interesting (laughs) because after the fall you know the, the the berlin wall comes down the Soviet Union collapses. I, I think there's not the in popular consciousness for a whole generation like this. It, it was, which was at least a symbol for people yeah. that there's another way of, of being. Do you think that there's? I mean, you teach undergrads, right? I mean, is there is there uh-huh. a sense of of taking for granted what gains for women have been won and the significance of the feminist movement? <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I would have said even five years ago and certainly 10 years ago that that was the case. Um, There were very few undergraduates who would call themselves feminist. I mean, they just thought it was, you know, completely anathema. And in part, I think they felt like those those fights had been won. They didn't need to think about those things. I was really I've been struck at the resurgence of feminism among young women recently, and particularly, I think, during and maybe especially after the the campaign, the presidential campaign and the election, that so many young women identifying themselves as feminists, I I have to say it is not... um, 
it's not the feminism that I grew up with. I have to kind of go back and read my own book sometimes to remind myself that they're allowed to have their own feminism and it's not my feminism. I will say this, it's a much more sexually liberated feminism than, um, which is funny because I write about the 70s, you think about the 70s as being like, but it, it is one in which they want to have much more control over their sexuality, which means for them, a lot of these old school feminist fights about control over reproductive rights, accessibility of contraception, all of that stuff, those I think will remain relevant to them. Um, so some of the stuff that, uh, you know, I benefited from this generation of, of women who fought so that I could, you know, get into graduate school and, you know, have have positions available kind of working up through the ranks. I, It's not that there's no sexism in, sexism in academia, but there's a lot more awareness of, of, of problems. Um, and I think these women recognize that, but they... Um, it's, it's actually kind of exciting, to be honest. It, I think the young feminists today feel a real sense of entitlement to have opportunities, and which was what the fight was for in some ways. You know, it's not the only thing the fight was for. But I think they do feel uh, a sense that it, they've been wronged if those opportunities aren't available to them. And, and why, do, so, so why you know. do you think that the sexual liberation piece is so... Is, is is more pronounced than even yeah because I do think the seventies I mean th- yeah that's that, that's pretty I mean <laughs> wow that's the time but but yeah. what do you attribute that to like why do you think that's a value that is near and dear to those who who now do identify uh, in a renewed way as feminists so I, I mean I think that part of it is that there's just you know I mean on the one hand I am struck when I go back and look at all of this feminist ephemera from the 70s, you know, feminist newsletter, mimeographed newsletters and things, that there's much more attention than to women's... I'm not sure if... It's a podcast. We can talk about this you stuff, You can talk right? about anything <laughs> you want. We're not at... We're okay. not censored. So, <laughs> so there's a lot more attention there to women's pleasure. I mean, there's like, you know, here's how you find your clitoris and here's how you stimulate it. And here's how, you know, there's like much more stuff about like women's sexual pleasure and the centrality of that and that... The, the fight over sexuality shouldn't just be for making women more sexually available to men, but for women having getting more pleasure out of sex. I think that that is less central to the conversation today, um, although it should be more central, <laughs> um, in my opinion. Again, that's like, but that's my, that's my feminism, maybe not theirs. But for them, there's, um, there seems to be more a sense of, uh, this is something that I'm allowed to control and to give away or not as I see fit. And um, I think that the increased attention to the you know issues about campus date rape or or non-campus date rape and sexual harassment and things like this that um, I think they're starting to see issues of sexuality play out more in the media. Not just there's more sex because there's just there's obviously more you know we see more sex on TV and more sex in the movies, but um, but that also there's more discussions about sexuality as a center of power dynamics, and I think their cognizance of that makes them think much more about what they do with their own sexuality. Again, less about pleasure always, although. I hope they think about that sometimes, but um, but more about that sexuality is something that that is fraught with power. Concerns. Do you think there's less focus on pleasure or the pleasure component, largely because there's almost been more progress on openness about about female sexuality, or, or at least there's been an impact, and so people is it a little more? I mean, in, in, you, women talk. I mean, we could in, in films and sitcoms. There are conversations about pleasure and things like this that maybe in the seventies there's a, a wider consciousness well, yeah. about it. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I think I think definitely part of you know this was hugely revolutionary in the seventies in a way that it right isn't now. And I think that now you see much more diverse sexuality in popular culture. Right, you see um, all you know, and, and I think that's probably been one way in which the conversation about pleasure has has been much more open. Um, it still seems to center more on who controls the sexuality rather than who enjoys it. But, you know, what can you do? <laughs> you know, one of the things I, I was fascinated to about in your book was like, I just had no idea how you talk about uh, the um, UN's commission on the status of women and the Eastern uh, Bloc uh, oriented women's international democratic federation and this, and, and their role in this, in their development of international women's year. And I just was like astounded at 
how much these Eastern Bloc nations had a voice in shaping this. I mean, you think of feminism as such a sort of Western, and by Western, I mean shorthand for for Western Europe, the United States, yeah, you yeah. know, uh, North America, the people that that on some level, um, sometimes in the in the in the conference itself, there's this this critiques of what is sometimes seen as bourgeois or something, or something like that. Yeah, but yeah. that absolutely, there's this whole Eastern European voice under communist states mm-hmm. that are pushing uh, yeah. for this conversation. I mean that. That seems like something you just don't hear very often. Yeah, I mean, there actually is some good scholarship about all these women's organizations. I think that we often assume that particularly state-sanctioned or state-connected women's organizations are somehow not real, like they're fakey-fakey women's organizations, but they're not. I mean, the fact is that once those organizations get set up, it's a certain infrastructure, and a lot of stuff happens within them that often, depending upon how authoritarian the state is, gets watched by the state but isn't necessarily fully in control of it, right? So we do want to kind of step away from that. But but the interesting thing at this particular geopolitical moment. So this, it's, you know, it's the Cold War, but it's detente. The Sino-Soviet conflict is brewing. There's a sense that things are, the kind of geopolitical mix is definitely changing. But there's no question that the Soviet Union and that kind of Soviet bloc countries look at the ways in which it was able to embarrass the United States on questions of race, like in the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s, that the U.S. still had a really horrendous track record on the question of racial discrimination and basically say, we can win another coup on this. And there's there's these funny exchanges that are like, but we have this many percentage of women senators and we have this many percentage of women engineers and trying to show all the ways in places like the Soviet Union where there truly just statistically was much more progress in terms of women in what had been conventionally male jobs um, and male positions and having opportunities. It was not the feminist paradise that it was <laughs> that was depicted, but there but there were some opportunities there that had not been available to women. But it became a kind of one of the many proxies for U.S.-Soviet competition. Yeah, you actually talk about the that in the wake of this, there were several conferences after this one in Mexico, right? One, one mm-hmm. in East Berlin, which was, we can talk more about that. That's fascinating. Uh, and there's there's one, I think, in India, right, in Bangalore. Um, and yeah. then... There's one in the United States, like two years later in Houston, and uh-huh. and, and, and it, this does seem like it has a, a, a much different color to it, and it, it's a little, mm-hmm. it, it seems a little more managed, uh, and mm-hmm. just in general more conservative. And and you talk about how at one point, because of the rise of the religious right, there's this different conversation going in the country, and actually during one of the events, the Kansas del- delegation turns their back and starts praying. Yeah. Yeah, there's actually a, a wonderful new book by a historian named Marjorie Sproul called Divided We Stand, which focuses just on that 1977 conference. It's, it, 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 I find it always amusing because that is also called the International Women's Year Conference, but it was just national and it wasn't during International Women's Year. But it was a, for, for U.S. feminism, it was a major turning point. So the Houston Conference in 1977 is really important in U.S. history and totally irrelevant for the rest of the world. The 75 conference is much less important in the in U.S. history, but it's much more important for the rest of the world. Um, the major impact the 75 conference, the Mexico City ha- conference has for the United States is it brings all of these other views of women's activists into the United States and, and makes it clear how parochial U.S. feminism had been up to that point. Um, but in 77, 77 is really where you get the rise of Phyllis Schlafly and people like that. And um, just a, a, a sense that feminism, and I, I have to say, this is a, I think this is an image that feminism has not yet shaken, which is this sense that feminism is somehow hostile to motherhood and to domesticity. And th- I mean, this is, we can blame Betty Friedan in some ways for this, this image, but uh, you would think that, and, and certainly in, in 75 in Mexico City, motherhood and domestic labor and all this were central questions. That's most of what women do most of the time in most of the world, right? But in the United States, feminism definitely has this reputation as being something that is hostile toward motherhood in particular, which is really a problem for feminism. <laughs> yeah, and almost in this country, it seems that somehow in in, in certain circles, it does seem to connotate uh, 
at least an ambivalence towards religion, at least in America. I'm thinking mostly Christian religion, although Mm -hmm. traditional forms of of life in general, maybe. And, you know, I think of the recent during some of the Trump uh, protests, which I think were I I was astounded at how uh, how many people protested. I mean, it's just like, wow. I mean, there's maybe there's a rebirth of of, of a popular kind of activism. But but this whole kind of tension between pro-life sort of feminists who are mm-hmm. religious and who uh, probably agree with the wider group of activists on most of the issues, but there's a swath that mm-hmm. there there's tension. And, and do you see that? How do you, I mean, do, do you see those tensions? It's interesting because you write very elegantly about, and you tell a history very elegantly about uh, conflict uh, that actually was, was, uh, productive and, and, and not a problem mm-hmm. the way it was cast, right? That actually, mm-hmm. some of this, yeah. do you see possibilities like that right now where there are kind of divisions of conflict? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I keep returning to your, um, the metaphor of heretics and I think it's really telling in this instance. I, what I see, and I, I am based in North Carolina where, um, you know, Christianity is just, it's deep in the cultural and social fabric here. Um, most activism happens through churches. Most the, the most uh, powerful social movement here and possibly in this country is one that's being led by Reverend William Barber, right? The um, who uh, is Pentecostal. Am I right about that? Baptist. Anyway, uh, I thought he was Pentecostal. I, I could be wrong about that, but he. Um, but who is uh, definitely Christian and who makes Christianity a really central part of what is, without question, the most progressive movement here, right? So one of the things that I think has happened, I don't think just since the since the election, the, the recent presidential election, but I think since a kind of hard right turn, certainly in state politics here and a lot of, na- I think in a lot of states and also nationally, is that many, many Christians— again, it seems here, are reclaiming Christianity for progressive movements, which to me makes perfect sense, right? I mean, this is Christianity from the from the get-go, right, was, was in a way a progressive movement. And But what's interesting also is that I think a lot of feminists have tried and I, th- I think are really insisting upon squaring their commitment to Christianity or or to faith in general, whether it be Christianity or some other faith, with their own feminist beliefs. And I probably the place where that um, becomes maybe most frictive is on the questions about reproductive choice, right? So there's a lot of other areas where there's some friction. I think there's, uh, I think people make a lot of assumptions about what Christianity is and, and um, in particular, evangelical Christianity. But I, the question about reproductive rights, I think, is one of the places that you see a lot of friction. And I, what was interesting in the Women's March, which ha- the one that happened right after the um, the inauguration, I don't know how much you remember about, about its organization, it kind of stumbled right out of the gate. Like there was, it, it was, it started w- with a some pretty conventional ideas, and they got called out pretty quickly. And in the end, the organizing committee included a number of, in particular, African-American women who are Christian and who are anti-abortion, but who are pro-life, but who are themselves pro-life, right? Like they, sorry, who are pro-choice, but anti-abortion. That is to say, they believe that women should continue to be able to have control over their own fertility and their own reproduction, but they themselves don't believe, like, they think the abortion is wrong. They think that it is a, a form of murder, effectively, right? And so I think that these conversations, if we can have them out in the open, right, if we can not have to have the line in the sand where we say, you're a heretic if you think that, right? If we invite people in and say, you can still be feminist and not think that abortion's a, I mean, I would say that nobody believes abortion's a good idea, right? But, like, and still think that abortion is wrong. And and so I think that we need to be able to have more of those conversations. But I have been really, and maybe it's just because I'm in North Carolina, which is a deeply, deeply Christian place. I have been really um, amazed and impressed about the ways in which devout Christians have insisted upon their progressive politics and vice versa. And the progressives have, have, have really been reclaiming Christianity in important ways. Yeah, my friend Mark Oppenheimer, uh, he was a, mm, yeah. he was a t- do you know Mark? He was uh, in grad school with me. I don't think were he you, was. Were you at Yale? But... 
Yeah, Do you know Molly Worthen too? I, you know, she is here at UNC. I don't actually know her. I, she's been on the podcast. <laughs> she's, she's younger than I am she's, by a fair she's, bit. Uh, she's delightful. Uh, she, uh, both, I like both of them a lot. And Mark was sort of invited to be, he, he said, I, I'm sort of the token liberal. And he wasn't the token Jew because there was another <laughs> Jew. In there, but, uh, uh, yeah, I think there was one other Jew. But he's like, I was to- token liberal at this kind of free speech on campus panel discussion uh-huh. in, in this really swanky hotel in New York it was put on by some there are national <laughs> review people there and he's like I got some free passes so I was like of course I'll go and hear you like but yeah you know, he made it he made a comment at that pa- on that panel that stuck with me he said conservatives like converts that's why they never kick somebody out of the tribe like there's you, there's a million uh-huh. sins forgiven a million right. exceptions he says liberals right. like purity which is why they always go after heretics, <laughs> right? And so, so like, uh-huh. I think, That's you know, I think of the, that the woman, the philosopher who wrote that essay, which I haven't read. I've just read some of the on transracial uh-huh. and transgender identities. Oh yeah, and, and this yeah. is a woman, from everything I can tell, who's has pretty good uh, leftist credentials politically. Right? But she's just she's a philosopher. <laughs> she's pretty thin, and she's yeah. crucified. She's asking questions. She's, she's crucified. Like, and I wonder yeah. that, that is that as you say a challenge for the left. Uh, around the purity yeah. test because again the yeah. concern the thing about that i think mark's right about is i we have i've talked with several guests about this donald trump is hands down the most secular president in my lifetime maybe of all time but definitely in yeah. my in my lifetime maybe yeah. thomas jefferson you could say you'd have to go back maybe maybe but, but well even thomas <laughs> jefferson was religiously literate though i mean here's someone uh-huh. but but the right has embraced you know and, and, and i think I evangelicals really before 2016 uh 72% said that you couldn't be a good president without a sort of, uh, you know, good moral and spiritual personal character. That number now has dropped to 32%. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, wow. no, well, I, that's I can't imagine why. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, is, is this as, you know, you, because I mean, you do make a plea for this right in your book, or at least you, I don't know if it's a pleaser, but you you do tell a story where the, again, like we said, where the, there's room for, messiness messiness and complexity you talk about some of the friendships mm-hmm. that are built how meaningful those are yeah. um yeah and don't erase the tensions you know yeah. you talk about uh, yeah. i forget what was the global organization that was founded which was cosmopolitan women with phds but you had to be in the global south um oh it's called dawn, yeah, dawn right. it's a terrible acronym for it's development development alternatives for women for a new era it's, it's a, anyway it's a, it's a nice acronym for a clunky name i guess but it, it which still exists and yeah and what was really striking was they said this isn't just about being someone from the global south who is now living in London or New York or whatever. You have to live here. You you don't you have to know that your tap won't necessarily turn on when you turn it right and like really live in the kind of material realities of what it's like to be in this, which is I think a you know it's quite different from, from being here. Yeah, and, and I mean, is there? I mean, how do you create space for uh, like for less? I, I don't want to frame it negatively, less periodist, but ha- for a sort of maybe more robust uh, space for conversations to happen around uh-huh. that. Like, how, how can we, you know, what did Reagan say? Like, if you agree with me uh, on 80% of the issues, 80% of the time, you're my friend. <laughs> like, 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 you know, I mean, there's something, is, is there yeah. something to that? I do think that we need to, and, and this is a really fraught question on campuses now, so I may get um, crucified for this, but I think we do need to create more spaces where people are made to be uncomfortable, right? Where we, um, you know, the, one of the moment in the book where this happens really prominently is that um, they're having a, it's a session in the NGO Tribune on kind of social issues, and this Australian student gets up and she says, I'm a lesbian feminist, and this is why, and this is why I think it's important, and this is why I think that, you know, heteronormativity essentially is is a form of cultural imperialism. And all these Marxists get up and walk out. And for the and for the whole conference, it gets set up as, you know, the all these rights around sex on the one side, like lesbian rights, sex workers' rights, they all get kind of both lumped together and put on one side, and human rights are on the other. So there's all these Chileans who are there in exile from the Pinochet um, government, from the Junta, um, who are talking about these really atrocious human rights abuses in Chile. And it literally is set up as, you can be here fighting for human rights, or you can be over there fighting for the lesbians, but you can't do both. And we can't set up conversations like that anymore. 
I do think I've been really um, heartened that so many young activists in movements like Black Lives Matter and in these feminist movements have taken up, um, sort of retaken this idea of intersectionality, which was big in the late 80s and early 90s and kind of went away. But to think about the ways that these, all of these issues are really imbricate and that we can't set up, uh, you know, you're with us or against us um, kind of mentality. But I I do think that part of that is going to have to be sitting with not just uncomfortable, like your priorities are different from mine, but uncomfortable, like, whoa, I just saw the ways in which I'm complicit in this thing that's really horrible, right? I just saw the ways in which that racism that continues, it's because of this thing that I do, or it's, do you see, or this misogyny, it's not separate from this thing that I do. And I, I we're going to have to really, those are uncomfortable questions um, and, and will require a lot of deep discussion. Um, but I, uh, the, the climate that we're in right now is so set up as, you agree with me or you're spewing fake news that it's it's been difficult, I think, to have those conversations. I wonder how much of that, too, is, you know, at that same event I was referencing where Mark was this panelist, he's, uh-huh. he said that they were talking about how there's no conservatives or few conservatives in academia. And Mark said, well, look, I, I teach at Yale at part time. You know, I, I, I would. Yeah, I, I, I know great conservative students. I encourage them to go do graduate work. And most of them don't. He's like my parents and or my lefty parents in central Massachusetts. They would have been happy for us to be poor college professors. But now, and even on the left, right. a lot of families like, hey, we want you to go and have a certain level of success and status. He says, you know, that, that there's so part of this um, kind of safe. I wonder if some of the safe, safe space and sort of uh, censorious nature of, of public discourse in academia. I wonder, is it because like there's almost a problem with intellectual diversity because conservatives tend to not want yeah. to do PhDs in the humanities. I, I would get, I mean, I, my, my impression is there's not a ton of them doing that kind of work. I, uh, I mean, you know, we had Richard Spencer in our PhD program, so ah, well, there, <laughs> that well, didn't okay. work out so there's, well. <laughs> okay, um, there's the but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, it's funny. I mean, I come from a family of conservatives. Like my parents were uh, Nixon and Reagan Republicans. Well, my mother started voting for the Peace and Freedom Party once the over the choice of or reproductive choice issues, but still. Um, but you know, I come from a family of deep conservatives. I was, you know, I I showed up at college a Republican. Um, so I you and Hillary Clinton, I, right? I, I, she showed up at well at well you, as a a there you, girl. you, you might be president. Be One girl, more but... thing that qualifies, you know, you be a presidential candidate. <laughs> right. there you go. I should run for president. Um, but I and so I, I think a few things have happened. One is that the Republican Party has moved considerably to the right, and it has moved considerably into the realm of the anti-intellectual, that is to say, the kind of opposition to things like basic scientific research. And I mean, it's really, that was, that was not the Republican Party, certainly of my parents' generation and even of my youth. I remember a Republican Party of small government, right? Not of invasive government. And where, um, the idea was that the government would fund things that would lead to, you know, entrepreneurial growth and, you know, that you put in the place, the infrastructure, both literal and, and, um, kind of intellectual that would allow for economic growth. And then you watched it happen. And it, so I think that part of what's happened in terms of diversity is that the whole Republican party just went way to the right. I think the other thing that happens is that you're right. It's not a field that, um, appeals to people, I think that, uh, how to put this, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to step back from that. I mean, I think there's a lot of people, certainly on the right, who care a lot about ideas and who find themselves, um, maybe not in disciplines as much like, uh, like history, but certainly in, in places like economics departments and political science departments, you, you know, there's a, certainly a heavy dose of conservatives. Peter Fever is here at Duke in the political science department. He was, you know, big in the Bush administration. So it's not, we, uh, at least at Duke, we have plenty of people who are card carrying conservatives. They, they aren't necessarily, um, conservatives in the mold of this particular administration for sure. But the people who consider their values, somewhere between libertarian and and conservative. Um, someone like Richard Spencer it was a different question. I don't know. But you know, Stephen Miller came out of Duke. I mean, so it's not like these 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 added these uh, perspectives aren't getting their say here. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not, there are more Democrats than Republicans for sure in academia. <laughs> <laughs> Demographically speaking. Um, yes, yeah. just, just straight up statistics. <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting. You say in the book, this is something that you talk about in the chapter called Chaos in the Tribune. You know uh-huh. that um, during a session on family formations, there's a Dutch sociologist, Ruth Wienhoven, who yeah. predicted that yeah. conventional family formations would become obsolete as homosexual unions, communes, and other formations arose to take their place, describing Latin America as clinging to family structures prevalent in Holland and England a thousand years ago. He foresaw that modernization, right. urbanization would transform social structures as people realize that human happiness is more important and they tie themselves to the people they love. I mean, there. do you think some of the, the, the mood, I mean, we did talk about the 70s, was it sort of a, a kind of a reimagination of certain kinds of societal structures that actually, I mean, you read, that's a couple years before, written a couple years before the era of Reagan. <laughs> you just, yeah. it's, it's amazing how, how, yeah. and how, um, you know, and even uh, you look at uh, the progress that's been made in recent years in marriage equality, which seems yeah. a very family friendly. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. The marriage equality yeah. movement um, has a conservative kind of small C um, yeah. tone to it. And I mean that in the, in the sense of, Caring about social stability uh, for all yes. people, uh, whoever they love, yeah. and and the importance of that for kind of human flourishing. I mean, is that how, as someone who's a historian who study, who chronicles the history of the feminist movement, <laughs> how, can, like, can you just say a bit about that story from a kind of a, a sort of imagination that involves a, a sort of real reinvention of social roles and things to sort of. Yeah, uh, I mean, even among the left today, I mean that that's not. I know many few few people would voice. You wouldn't hear a lot of people in mainstream um, left of center circles uh, talking like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I so I, I do think the so the seventies are different. <laughs> from, right. First of all, although one thing to note is that the person who the, the uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N. actually changed in the middle of this conference, the new. U.S. ambassador was Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who at that point is maybe best known or, or certainly well known for the Moynihan Report, right? And w- with its critique of matriarchy and that black families are failing because they're too matriarchal and you have, you know, and I, there, so there is this already this discussion happening about where family formations fit in here. Um, we have, we in the United States, in terms of public policy, and this is not true, for example, in most Western European countries, but have ma- remained really dedicated to policies that center on a very particular model of what a family looks like. So you're right, gay marriage actually reinscribes that same model. It turns out this a whole lot of families that look nothing like that. Mm. Um, and so we have these policies that are kind of systematically excluding them from everything that, you know, they're, they're part of this polity, part of this society too. And so I, you know, and I'm sure you see, as we all do, there are repeated studies about how for children, for example, it's really incredibly important to have um, two adults in the household, which one can only imagine is true. Like taking care of kids is a lot of work and incredibly stressful, and it would take at least two right, adults, Right. right? But there's, most of the studies don't say it needs to be a man right, and a woman. Right. It needs to be the children's biological parents. It needs to be, it just needs to be two responsible adults who like aren't actively using drugs. And, you know, hopefully there's some kind of income happening, right? Somewhere along the line. So that's, it's, it, there's a lot of possible family formations within those broad parameters that could still be quite healthy for society, for children, for the adults in those families. Um, so I was really struck by the Rudvinhoven uh, quotation that you read. I mean, in part because I was struck that it didn't set off some sort of maelstrom. It kind of happened and then there was not much more conversation about it. But that also it rang so true today. Like, why hasn't that happened yet? Why wasn't he right? Right, right. right. And I mean, maybe that's interesting what you're saying. So you're like, it's interesting that that kind of stability by adults could happen in lots of different kind of social Uh arrangements where a child feels loved and cared for and where people aren't stressed all the time because they have someone just kind of shoulder the load. Right, right. But that's really about labor sharing. And it's sometimes also about income, like resources, essentially. Um, But it's almost never about, is this your actual real biological father in the room or whatever? Yeah, and and this is, I mean, we we touched on this a little bit, but it's still kind of looming around my head, like where, you know, the 
the kind of, I mean, you like Hillary Clinton definitely was a neoliberal candidate, right? If we're talking about somebody yes. for, who has no a, is kind of trying to have, has hope in free markets, capitalism, albeit with a, with a safety net, progressive, these sorts of things. Right. And, I mean, how much today do you see the continued tension in the, in this sort of, you talk about all these NGOs that now, I mean, the word NGO yeah. now is just so popular in the imagination, which, which right. here in the seventies, <laughs> you, you talk about how this was, people saw, okay, you can get more done here than these bureaucratic right. sort of parliamentary systems. Right. I mean, how much is the, is the, is the neoliberal versus uh, skepticism about capitalism, uh, that sort of development? Uh-huh. Now? How much does that still shape feminist conversation? Like for, you know, 40, we're 40 years so- out of Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things embedded. Like there's several questions embedded in that question. Uh, This now seems like ancient history, but you might remember that before the election, the the feminist like conversation was about Henry Slaughter and Sheryl Sandberg, right? And could you really lean in? And is that a thing? And you know, and and then critiques from the feminist left of saying there's a whole lot more to feminism than whether or not you can become a you know full professor or run your own like tech company or whatever. And so I think that part of it is that there's been a kind of conversation among feminists about, you know, where our priorities should be. So there's, there's that. I, I do want to circle back to the question. I mean, when you mentioned Hillary Clinton, um, I, I, you know, there's no question. Part of it was about her neoliberal policies. I think that the the Clinton's responsibility for NAFTA, um, certainly in places it, like North Carolina that were hit really, really hard by NAFTA, um, that there's no question about it. But people also had this kind of allergic reaction to Clinton that I think can't be reduced to her policy positions. I mean, when you talk to people who voted for Trump or who simply didn't vote uh, but who are conservative and who oppose Clinton, what they'll say is it's because she's it's because she doesn't tell the truth because she lies. Right. Which, which, which was, um, of course, Trump's like lion Hillary or whatever. Nobody lies more than Donald Trump. <laughs> like, I, right? I mean, that, that, yep. like he, he I, I don't think I don't think f- facts or truth really matter much to him. So so right. and I, no one's no um, one's more indifferent to the charge. Too. That's the thing. I mean, every every right. politician gets yeah. caught in places where they have to shade the truth. But they, they sure. don't, but they at least are shamed when when there's sure. a sense. I don't want. I mean, it doesn't seem to, to bother him at all. Like, uh, no. in fact, he thrives no. on it. Well, that's fake news. And it sets more up more yeah. of a, again, more of the sort of adversarial. I like a fight. Kind of, it's strange. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like you're a chump if you're out there looking for the truth, right? And so I, so it never rang true to me when people would say, I, I can't support Hillary because I don't, I think she doesn't tell the truth. I do think uh, for a lot of people and for a lot of women, they remember, they remember the cookie bake off. They remember that she insisted on keeping her maiden name. They remember, right? They remember a certain form of feminism that again, like rings true. I, I got my name. I I think that rings true to people, but that um, to to feminists, I mean, the, I think is the very reason a lot of feminists of her generation and of my, I'm a little younger than she is, of, of my generation, um, supported her is precisely because of those feminist ideals, because she insisted that she could have a career and be a mother and be, you know, and then go on to be secretary of state and all of these things. But for a lot of women, it was a, an implicit reprise of the Betty Friedan critique. It was an implicit reprise of like, isn't it, how, why are you completely minimizing or denigrating or demeaning this incredibly important thing that I do, which is raising five kids or, you know, taking care of my mother while I also keep a household going or, you know, all of these things. And I, it, I, I think there was a I think the tension was more deeply cultural and gendered than just about neoliberalism and, and capitalism. Although there's no question, there's absolutely no question that that was part of the story. Certainly in places like North Carolina, and I, I, I'm guessing in most of the South, that was really hit hard by by things like NAFTA and would have been shellacked by TPP. I wonder too how really. much of the American reaction elector terrorists like I mean her husband went to law school but he was a politician always wanted to be a politician I mean but she was trained as a litigator and she's a lawyer she was good at I mean you know and the way lawyers answer questions you know they teach you you know depositions you know never never answer more than his ass you know do you know what time it is yes it's 12 or 5 no don't say just say yes I know what time it is and and sometimes when she's pressed (laughs) 
she communicates in a way that she was trained as a lady. That's how a lawyer would talk. Right. You know? And so yeah. it's just, you know, it, it, it or it, it right. comes off as inauthentic, but it is, is probably authentically how she thinks professionally, you know, because whereas Trump says way more than you ever asked yeah, for. Should ever say, I gosh, I can't think of how <laughs> yeah. tough it would be to be his lawyers when you're tweeting. Oh, I'm under investigation. Yeah. I have wondered that many times of the past few weeks. <laughs> do you think it, that cannot be an easy job? Do you think Hillary Clinton is gets it? I mean, is do you think that the post election evaluation of her has been fair, unfair? I mean, do you think as a, as as the first female candidate of a major party? I mean, has it has that been? I mean, how much of the do you think is just so unfair and unfair in given uh, she's a woman? Yeah. I mean, listen, there were conspicuous episodes of misogyny during this campaign. I mean, really stunning, gobsmacking episodes of misogyny that I thought would be the end of the Trump candidacy and weren't, right? And so I, um, you know, I think for a lot of women, part of why it was so devastating to see Trump win um, was just like, does none of this matter? Does none of this count? Like, really, you can do that and still go on to become president? Um, so I think that's part of it. In terms of how that's been particularly applied to her, you know, I think there's been a lot of sympathy for, you know, what, did she, was she treated differently? Was she treated unfairly because of her sex? And I, I think there's no question that that was the case, right? On the other hand, I think there's a lot of people who have reacted against her uh, parent sense of entitlement to the office and um, and to the refusal of the Clinton campaign to own some of its mistakes um, and to a sense that this really was a rejection of some of the policies that the Clintons had stood for. And I think I think she had tried to to back away from some of those policies during the campaign. I don't think anybody really believed that she was going to stop believing in free trade right? That was so clearly a part of what, of, of her principles. And so she can, you know, dial back on something like TPP. I think for most people, they felt like you, you still don't understand how badly this has affected my community's economy. Um, and so I, I think that, uh, has she been treated fairly? I, I don't, I mean, that was such a bruising campaign. I, I'm not sure. I, I kind of feel like I, I would cut her all the slack in the world for just needing to kind of make her peace with it. Um, but I think the part of why it's harder for her to make her peace was this, she has a sense that, you know, two elections in a row, she got robbed. And for most voters, it's not something was her to have stolen. It was something that was hers to earn. Um, so that's, I think that's where a lot of the tension comes from. In light of the, yeah, I mean, the election of Donald Trump, which, yeah, I think on so many levels is, 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 is changes the game in the sense of, wow, you can say these things and do the, I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's yeah. wild and has changed public life. I mean, I wonder, I mean, you've already said that on one level, I mean, it, it's the, the misogyny that, that is so um, explicit, it, you know, because the, these things aren't campaign ending is astounding. But at the, on the other hand, there is a, a sort of reawakened activism. Um, mm-hmm. are, are you hopeful about the feminist movement, like the legacy, ongoing legacy yeah. of uh, 1975. I mean, are, are you, do you, as someone who teaches, uh, you know, the history yeah. of the movement and is a historian and, and, and a scholar, and, you know, and a believer in, in the movement, you know, uh, do you? Do, so, how, yeah, I mean, ironically, I've never been more hopeful for feminism than I've been since the inauguration, right? <laughs> Which is that, that I know it seems improbable. I, I think it is really um, galvanized. I mean, you, you asked earlier about young women feeling kind of complacent or that they, feminism had nothing for them. I think it galvanized a lot of younger women, not just 20-somethings, 30-somethings, 40-somethings, who thought, okay, we can check that off our list and go fight other fights and now realize there, there's no room for complacency here. But even cooler, I think, even more exciting and was that so there was that women's march and you know there was the all of the controversy around like who could speak and whatever but the fact is millions and millions of people showed up for these marches right you couldn't move I mean, if you were in washington dc you could not you were like on the the plaza you could not move it was so crowded and 
And it was so dynamic. And I, 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 I have all these, I was there and I have all these photos of all these different signs and all these different things that brought people out. And the amazing thing was after that, there was a kind of infrastructure in place of people who wanted to do stuff, right? And there's a lot of energy. And the folks who organized the conference started a series that they were going to have 10 actions over 100 days, right? But the actions were all around creating space to find your own issue, right? So the, I don't know if you remember, the first one was it was that you would have a postcard party, right? And you would send letters, some postcards to your senators about whatever issues were important to you. And they, they had a list of like, here are the things that we think are important. You, you know, pick one or find what's important to you. Some of them were pretty, you know, like we want affordable healthcare or whatever, right? You know, we want the, you know, public education not to be completely privatized. Um, so uh, things like that. But it was, um, I, it, the idea was to open things up and they, they created these things that they called huddles. They encouraged women to get together and just talk about what was important to them and about how to go forward. I think that feminism, if we're going to really make it relevant, keep it relevant, it needs to be elastic in that way. And it also needs to be something where we set up, you know, one of the things that's been happening is a lot of these um, dinners where, uh, at least these are happening in North Carolina, I don't know about elsewhere, where white women and women of color sit down and they talk about really, really candid ways about where race fits into this. And these are these are really tough conversations, and they're sometimes angry and accusatory, but we have to let all that be part of feminism if we want feminism to continue to be a force in, in not just in politics, but in society and in culture. Yeah. But I'm confident. I actually think, I actually think there's more energy and dynamism and openness to those kinds of conversations now than I've seen in 30 years, probably. Yeah, it's interesting the timing of the release of the the handmaid's tale uh yeah it, because it, it's sort of although i, although I had a friend who's uh teaches feminist theology in the midwest she wrote on facebook look this isn't a dystopian future this is what the past has been like we have history books about yeah, this yeah, exactly. yeah, but yeah i mean it is, but it is i mean it's interesting right because the difference between post-apocalyptic right post-apocalyptic the whole thing breaks and there's cast but dystopia yeah you get the sense that the citizens are generally complicit in in yeah. the dystopian reality that unfolds, right. and so the, I mean, right. I wonder if we'll see more dystopian pictures in film and TV. I mean, I do think that lifelong feminists, and I am um, I am one of those. We need to think about the reasons that so many women find feminism alienating, and that that needs to be a serious conversation and one that doesn't kind of lean on arguments about false consciousness or uh, women being duped or whatever. It needs to really recognize what is important to women that they do not find feminism speaking to them. What would you say? Like what, if somebody, yeah, like what, what would you say are the top things? I think it's some of the stuff we touched on earlier. I think that, that for a lot of women for whom their church is the most important thing, that's their major social center and their family is the most important thing to them. And they spend inordinate amounts of time and energy and resources dedicated to their children and their family, I think they often don't see feminism creating much space for them. Mm. And that's most women. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's really, you know, and I think that for a lot of women who feel like I, I want to be able to stay home with my kids, I, you know, the whole idea of a family wage, which I think for a lot of feminists, was a way of keeping women out of the workforce and, um, making women more dependent on men. And that's the reason we, there's, a, so there are good reasons we turned away from that is that women needed to have independent access to resources and not just wealthy women, but working women. Um, and that's, that's where a lot of working class feminism came from. But, you know, there are a lot of women who say, but we still haven't dealt with the fact that we need to take care of our, you know, someone's got to take care of these kids. Mm -hmm. Um, and so this, I just think we need to have serious conversation in particular about the question about what we do about households, right? Um, and I, I think there's a lot of possibilities kicking around. Um, I think that most people are not that excited about the idea of having it just be public childcare. That's the only solution. I think that uh, many people want to be able to, to take care of their own children in their own homes. Um, but that's a really tough, that's a heavy lift right now, mm. economically and socially even. So 
Those are the issues. <laughs> yeah, I was moved at the end of the book. You say that one of the most important legacies of the Mexico City Conference was not a policy development or any single organization, but rather the deep and enduring friendships that it forged. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, is that, I, I hear some of that in what you just said, in the, 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 the yeah. spaces where, uh, I mean, people, it's interesting, right? Like Eat, Pray, Love, where the woman is uh, talking, uh-huh. working with all the, the refugees and all they want to talk about is, oh, you know, th- th- these deep relational things of life. Like, she's like, oh, gosh, I didn't think yeah. they want to talk about this stuff. And, 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 yeah. and it, it is, I mean, how much of any movement is the ability for people to have a space where they feel like they can know and be known? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think also to have, to know and be known and to develop relationships of such strength that when they're tested, they don't just break. Mm. And I, um, it's, it's one of the reasons I'm not super confident that social media is going to be the answer for social movements. And that I, I think that those they're good as any, as, as media are, they're good for broadcast. I'm not sure they're as good for developing the kind of relationships of confidence and trust that you need for those kinds of difficult conversations we talked about earlier right? To really be able to put stuff on the table. I think, in fact, quite the opposite. You put something on social media and you have to be prepared that it will be read and misread um, in whatever way. And that's it, it's not part necessarily of an ongoing relationship. Um, and that, I, I think these are going to need to be real-time, in-the-flesh uh, relationships to, to actually sustain a movement. Jocelyn, thanks so much for talking with me. Uh, I, everybody should you. everybody should read your book, and I hope it becomes a movie <laughs> or a serial drama because I will watch it. Excellent. Thank you so much. This was really a treat. Yeah, I'll have you back on. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And please do check out Jocelyn's book, International Women's Year, The Greatest Consciousness Raising Event in History. It's a great read on a really important subject. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, fare thee well.